morning church. Our scripture reading for today is found in the book of Exodus, chapter 24, verse 3 to 8. So that's Exodus, chapter 24, verse 3 to 8. When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice. Everything the Lord has said, we will do. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. He got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he sent young Israelite men and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in bowls, and the other half he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, We will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all his words. Amen. Father, it's not by accident that we are gathered here on this day in this place, this particular group of people. Uh, We recognize your providential hand, not only this day, but in days past that has led us to be sitting here in this sanctuary together, growing in bonds of love with one another, growing in our unity and growing in love deeper with you. And I pray that during this time in your word again, that you would strengthen those bonds, help us to deepen in our relationship with you and with one another, uh, with the world around us. And Father, may you be glorified uh, during this preaching time. We pray in the mighty and powerful name of our Savior, Master, Lord, Morning Star, Friend, Jesus Christ. Amen. We begin this morning with a premise that was stated by an author named Albert Wolters in his very important book, Creation Regained, Biblical Basics for a Reformational Worldview. The premise from Walter's book is simply this, and I'm going to quote from him here. The premise is that both God and Satan lay claim to the whole of creation, leaving nothing neutral or undisputed. One more time. The premise we're starting with today is that both God and Satan lay claim to the whole of creation, leaving nothing neutral or undisputed. So the areas of church and business and politics and education, journalism, our emotional life, our thought life, Plants and animals, family, art, your sex life, technology, 
science, all of it right now, is claimed by these two opposing forces, God and Satan. There isn't a single area in all creation that is neutral or undisputed. There is a war between two kingdoms for the whole of creation. And this premise matters for a proper understanding of what redemption is. Redemption, again, according to Albert Walters, redemption is nothing less than the recovery of creational goodness through the annulment of sin and the effort toward the progressive removal of its effects everywhere. Walters says, Mark's version of the Great Commission bids us preach the good news to all creation because there is a need of liberation from sin everywhere. This morning, our focus during the preaching time is on what's called the Book of the Covenant in the book of Exodus. That title, the Book of the Covenant, comes directly from, if you have your Bible open, it comes from directly from Exodus 24-7. And the section of Exodus that makes up the book of the covenant is Exodus 20, verse 22, up to Exodus 23, verse 33. Pardon me. Now, what's the content of the book of the covenant? Again, Exodus 20, 22 to Exodus 23, 33. What's the content of it? The book of the covenant is a truly astounding range of laws that God pronounced to his new nation, Israel, as they were gathered there at Mount Sinai following their release from Egypt. The book of the covenant falls on the heels of the ten words, and in many cases the laws in the book of the covenant elaborate on the Ten Words, the Ten Commandments. And if you were looking for a section of the Bible that shows clearly that God lays claim to the whole of creation, leaving nothing neutral or undisputed, this would be a good place to start. Because the Book of the Covenant shows us God's concern, not just for the areas that we might classify as belonging to the religious sphere. More than that, the book of the covenant shows us in a very vivid way that God cares, listen, he cares about how people conduct business, for example. God cares about how people treat animals, God cares about how people treat the poor and the disadvantaged in society. God cares about how people behave in the sexual realm, etc., etc. The Book of the Covenant touches on a truly amazing range of topics showing us God's concern for all areas of human life, his concern for every nook and cranny of God's world. If we read the Book of the Covenant thoughtfully, the conclusion that we're forced to make is this. And I want you to listen here. 
The conclusion is that it's very hard for us to maintain a cut and dry split between the sacred on the one hand and the secular on the other. The book of the covenant doesn't allow us to do that. It interweaves and mixes together what we in our day might classify as the secular. It mixes that with the sacred. The book of the covenant shows us, as Terence Fretheim has put it, that all of life is a seamless web and that the God of this life will not be split off to care simply for the religious realm. So we need to understand this organic mixing together of the sacred and the secular in the book of the covenant as we venture today into just a few specific texts within the book of the covenant. Now in his book, Enter His Courts with Praise, Old Testament Worship for the New Testament Church, the author Andrew Hill reminds us, listen to this, that the ancient Hebrew worldview dismissed... Any idea of compartmentalizing human life into sacred or worship and secular or the routine of daily living. All of life was worship for the Hebrews. From offering sacrifices to transacting property to feeding your donkey to eating with your family. They just would not have understood us if we came to them wanting to separate the sacred from the secular. They wouldn't have understood that. Well, as I've said, what we want to do this morning is to just parachute in to two or three passages from the Book of the Covenant to ponder together some select examples of God's concern for every aspect of human life. The first passage we want to spend time with is actually just a single verse Exodus 21, verse 29. And again, I've had to be selective here for the sake of time. Exodus 21, verse 29. Now, the verse is found in a portion of the book of the covenant that's dealing, interestingly enough, with the proper handling of oxen. And the official Dunbar paraphrase of verse 29, I know that's dangerous, but here it is. It goes like this. Here's my paraphrase. Say someone owns an ox, and this particular ox has a mean streak. This particular ox has had a demonstrated habit in times past of goring people, of charging at people and piercing those people with its horns, roughing them up, and... The owner of the ox is aware of the repeated habit of the ox, but the owner has not taken the necessary precautions to keep people safe from the ox. And then the ox with the mean streak goes ahead and kills a man or a woman. In that case, says Yahweh, the ox shall be stoned, And its owner also shall be put to death. Now notice first of all, friends, that there's nothing of of a particularly religious flavor (laughs) about this law 
in Exodus 21. This law has to do with oxen on a farm and how people are to handle or manage their oxen. As we've said already, God cares about all aspects of human interaction and human dealing. But now the problem is, for us who live in an urban environment in 2017, the city of Montreal, the problem is, how in the world might Exodus 21-29 apply to us today? Last I checked, nobody at Snowden Baptist owns any oxen, unless you want to come and correct me on that after today. Maybe you know something that I don't. One of the things we wrestled with a little bit during our Thursday night seminar that's just wrapped up is the question, what do we do with Old Testament law? How much of it still applies to the Christian? How do we draw lines, or can we draw lines, between laws that still apply and laws that no longer apply? I think Exodus 21-29 might be a great example of where we should probably take what's called the principal approach to the law. The question we ask is, is there a clear principle behind this law about oxen that may still apply to us even though none of us own any oxen? I think there is. And I'm helped here by John Oswalt, who says that perhaps the principle behind this particular law is, listen, knowledge equals responsibility. Knowledge equals responsibility. The owner of the ox, says verse 29, knew that the ox had a mean streak, but the owner did not take responsibility. He did not do anything to protect people from his 1,200-pound, grumpy animal. Therefore, the owner is guilty and deserved of punishment because prior knowledge of the mean streak in the ox needed to translate into responsibility on the part of the owner, but it didn't. Knowledge equals responsibility is perhaps the principle that still applies to us today. Now, about two weeks before we left for Kentucky, I was informed by Majid's mechanic friend, Karosh, that the front brakes on our van needed new pads and discs. Karosh said to me on that day when I was at his shop, he said, you're traveling a fair distance down to Kentucky. If you don't fix your brakes before you leave, you won't have any brakes by the time you come back. So at that point, I had knowledge, didn't I? I had knowledge of bad brakes on our van. I could have ignored Karosh's advice. We could have driven to Kentucky, thereby endangering the lives of my family members and others who were driving on the road. If I injured somebody or killed somebody due to the faulty brakes, the negligence would be on my head because I had known that they needed to be uh, repaired, but I didn't do anything about it. Knowledge equals responsibility. The end of the story, of course, if you're interested, is that I went ahead and had the brakes fixed uh, on the Friday before our trip to Kentucky. (laughs) So everyone was safe. Exodus 21-29 applies in principle to us. 
If we have knowledge about something that has potential of bringing harm to another person and we do nothing with that knowledge, it is of such concern to God that he pronounces severe penalties, notice, on the negligent party. God cares about this area of human life. His heart is reflected in this part of the book of the covenant. God says to us, knowledge equals responsibility. Well, let's look at another example of God's concern for every facet of human life in the book of the covenant. Now, one of the five subsections of the book of the covenant, if you're interested in the structure of this thing, one of the five subsections is the subsection that goes from 2221 to 23.9. 22, verse 21, to chapter 23, verse 9. Now, what I want us to notice is that the verse that begins this subsection, 22.21, and also the verse that ends the subsection, 23.9, are both essentially the same. Notice this. 22.21 reads... You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. And then 23.9 at the end of the subsection reads, You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. So that this little subsection of the book of the covenant is framed, isn't it, with the same command. It's so important that it's repeated twice. And the thrust of the command is, Israel, you must always remember that you languished as the disadvantaged ones. While you were in Egypt, Israel, you were the aliens, the sojourners, the oppressed ones, the abused ones. You were the harassed ones that lived in this foreign place called Egypt without any birthrights. Always remember what that experience was like for you, Israel. It was a bitter experience. Remember it so that when you yourselves have the poor among you, when you have the disadvantaged and the alien and the sojourner in your midst, you will be sure to treat them with kindness. People of God, you are not to become like a new Egypt lording it over the foreigner in your midst. You are not to oppress the sojourner. You are not to do wrong to the alien or push around the foreigner who lives among you. That's the thrust of 22.21 and 23.9, and it's the main point of, of much of what falls in between these two verses. Now, Deuteronomy 10.19 takes things even a step further And it tells the people of God to love the sojourner. 
So not only are you not to treat the sojourner badly, you are to actively love him or her. Now, what do we see in this part of the book of the covenant? We see God's heart for the vulnerable person, for the sojourner. And it's a heart that he wants to be reflected in the behavior of his kids. Amen? Are you with me? When we become xenophobic, fearing foreigners from different places, building walls to keep foreigners out, Lord have mercy. When we mistreat people from other cultures who live around us, when we abuse the sojourner, we are acting at variance with the heart of God and we should repent and turn back to God. Treat the sojourner with kindness, with active love. Do not mistreat him or her. We see God's heart in the book of the covenant. Well, let's go to just one more sample passage from the book of the covenant. Again, I've had to limit this to just three passages today for the sake of time. There's so much here that deserves to be preached. But let's let's just go to one more passage from the same subsection of the book of the covenant. Actually, this is Exodus 22, 26, and 27. The verses read, If ever you take your neighbor's cloak in pledge. Now, why would a person take a neighbor's cloak in pledge? The situation here in this ancient Near Eastern context was this. Say you borrowed money from person A. Person A gave you a loan. Normally, you as the person receiving the loan would have to pledge some sort of collateral in case you defaulted on the loan and couldn't pay it back. Oftentimes a piece of property was pledged as collateral as you received the loan. But see, many folks in this culture were property-less. That is, there were many of a lower economic standing that didn't have a whole lot to pledge as surety or collateral. In those cases... A simple article of clothing, a cloak, could be pledged as collateral. That's the background here. Again, the verses, if ever you, who are giving out a loan, take your neighbor's cloak in pledge, and then listen to the heart of God here, you who have taken the cloak in pledge shall return the cloak To him before the sun goes down. That is, presumably, every day that the loan was outstanding, you'd have to give the cloak back to your borrower before sundown and then get it back again in the morning. You shall return the cloak to him before the sun goes down. Now, listen, this is God, for that is his only covering. And it is his cloak for his body. In what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. Now, I don't know about you, but this really moves me. (laughs) 
Can you hear the heart of your God in these verses? The one who fashioned those massive stars that we've now discovered that are 1,500 times the size of our sun. The one who put mountain ranges at the bottoms of oceans that we're still trying to map and figure out. This God, according to Exodus 22:27, is concerned that people have pajamas to sleep at night. That's what verse 27 is telling us. The commentator Goran Larson puts it like this. The Lord and King of the universe cares even about the pajamas of a single poor human being. How moving and how beautiful and how tender is this. Behold your God. Now really what God does here in these verses is he legislates compassion on his people. Amen? Amen. He legislates compassion. For us to be imitators of God, Ephesians 5.1, which we are called to be, for us to be imitators of God means, at least in part, that we will care about whether people are sleeping at night with dignity and sleeping in warmth and comfort. As we said at the beginning today, this book of the covenant, Exodus 20:22 20, to 23:33, shows us that God is concerned about, God lays claim to every nook and cranny of his world. He cares not only about religious observances, which, by the way, do get airtime also in the Book of the Covenant. He cares not only about the religious observances, he cares about every other aspect of human life, from our being responsible with knowledge, to our caring for the foreigner, loving the foreigner, to our sleeping with dignity, to the way we treat animals, 23.11 and 23.12, to how property damage should be addressed, 2133 to 2217, and so on it goes right through the whole book of the covenant. I want to work this toward a conclusion by having us look briefly now at Exodus 24. Turn to Exodus 24. Now, at, after 2333, which is the conclusion we've said, it's the, 2333 is the conclusion of the long, varied array of laws in the book of the covenant. After that verse, a number of things then happen. In Exodus 24.3, Moses recounts to the people all of God's words and ordinances. We're not sure how long that took. Probably took some time there. And the people pledge again, like they had back at 19.8. We saw that when we were in chapter 19. All the words which Yahweh has spoken, we will do. And then after that pledge, Moses takes time to write down the words of the book of the covenant. And then he builds an altar, sets up 12 pillars in verse 4. And then burnt offerings and other sacrifices then ensue, verse 5. Moses then takes half of the blood, notice, half of the blood of the sacrificial bulls and sprinkles it over the altar. 
Then he reads the book of the covenant to the people. They pledge again their fealty and their fidelity to the God, to, to God at the end of verse 7. And then notice verse 8. Moses took the remaining half of the bull's blood and threw it on the people. Just imagine in your mind's eye the picture. The blood sprayed on the people's faces and on their chests and on their arms. And Moses said, Behold the blood of the covenant that Yahweh has made with you in accordance with all these words. So notice this in Exodus 24. Half the blood gets sprinkled on the altar and the remaining half gets sprinkled on the people. This covenant about the various aspects of human life and life with God is a blood covenant. The idea as the blood is thrown on the altar in verse 6 is nothing less than this. May God strike God dead if God ever reneges on his side of the covenant. That's the significance of spraying blood on the altar. And likewise, as the blood is thrown on the faces of the people in verse 8, the idea is, may God strike us, the people, dead if we ever renege on our part of the covenant. This is a pact or a covenant sealed in blood. Now, I want you to come with me about five weeks forward from this solemn blood covenant moment. Five weeks. If you had a camera five weeks hence and you zoomed into the scene where the same people were gathered, the same people that had had the blood sprayed on their faces a few weeks back, what you'd see through the lens of your camera is this. The people through your zoom lens are now praising and fawning over a golden idol. They are giving a lifeless idol the credit for delivering them out of Egypt. The golden calf. John Oswald makes the point very well when he says this, these people could not keep covenant for five weeks, let alone forever. Yes, this is the story of the people of God. The rest of the Old Testament that follows the golden calf debacle in Exodus 32, the rest of the Old Testament can be read as the ongoing, sordid failure of the people of God to keep their end of the bargain. The Old Testament can rightly be read as the disastrous failure of the people to keep covenant with God. From kings in Israel who kept on insisting that altars to foreign gods be set up, to the ugly social injustice that was rampant in certain parts of Israel's history, to the forced labor, forced labor that Solomon imposed in Israel, just like Pharaoh had done in Egypt, to the ghastly civil infighting and killing that we see in a book like Judges, 
Israel failed blatantly to keep their end of the covenant. And they failed for a period of 1,400 years. Time and time and time again. Meanwhile, God, on the other side, remained utterly faithful to his side of the covenant. God, for his part, though he might have cashed in on his rights and destroyed the people after week one of their covenant breaking, God remained astoundingly patient. And I'm stressing the word astoundingly there. Astoundingly patient, long-suffering through all of Israel's mess for 1,400 years. And even in the moments of the people's exile, God had his prophets hold out to them hope for a future. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. Amazing mercy. Undeserved compassion held out to a wayward, rebellious, covenant-breaking people. And then came the new covenant. (laughs) Moses, in the book of Exodus, was the mediator of the old blood covenant. Jesus, according to Hebrews 9.15, is the mediator of a new covenant. A covenant established not by the blood of bulls, but a covenant established by the blood of the mediator himself. By the blood of of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. God gives God's self for God's wayward people. Amen? In the upper room, just prior to his crucifixion, when Jesus had gathered his disciples for the Passover meal, the third cup of wine was passed around. And what did Jesus say in that moment? He said, in direct connection back to Exodus 24, 8, He said, this is whose blood? This is my blood of what? Of the covenant. This is my blood of the covenant. Moses in Exodus 24, 8 had said to the people as he sprayed their faces with blood, he said, behold, the blood of the covenant. That was the old covenant moment. Jesus in the upper room was formally introducing the new and better covenant. 1 Peter 1-2 speaks of you, believer, if you're a believer in Christ, it speaks of you being sprinkled now, not with the blood of any bull, but sprinkled in your heart with the blood of Jesus Christ, who dies in the place of wayward, covenant-breaking Sinners who deserved the death. Did you know that? We all deserve the death that Jesus takes. We deserved it for our rebellion against God. With the Apostle Paul in Acts 13.39, I say to you this morning, let it be known to you, let it be known to you today that through this man Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. 
And, of course, one of the primary, most important differences, and then I'm done, between the old covenant under Moses and the new covenant under Jesus is that the old covenant was, was inscribed on stone tablets. The new covenant, according to 2 Corinthians 3.6, is of the Spirit. In the new covenant, God puts his law in our hearts and minds. God rebirths us and transforms us and enables us by the residence in us of the Holy Spirit of God to live as God intends. Believer, this week, be a doer of the word of the new covenant out of your love for him who first loved you. Walk in step with the Spirit. Live out the vows of your baptism this very week in the power of the Spirit. Take up your cross. Keep the commands of Christ. I want to leave it there as we adjourn now to the communion table table where we're going to drink the cup of the new covenant and eat the bread which represents the body of our new covenant head. I want to invite those serving to come forward. And it has been such a blessing to be together again on another Lord's Day. Here's your benediction. Go out and make known the mystery of the gospel. Keep alert and pray at all times. Draw strength from God's power and so stand firm against all that would corrupt you. And may God arm you with truth and righteousness. May Jesus Christ give you words of spirit and life, and may the Holy Spirit draw you near to God's presence and bless you with honor and grace. We go now in peace to love and serve the Lord. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.